Moms are great at reminding, aren't they? Moms are great reminders. Mark, did you clean your room? Mark, did you get your homework done? Mark, did you memorize your scripture verses? My mom drilled memorization of scripture into us as kids um, from the earliest age that I can possibly remember. As a matter of fact, my mom signed me up for after school Bible lessons. So I'd finish school and then I have to go to Mrs. Cook's house, who happened to be the church organist. And uh, she re- reported to my mom when I didn't show up for those Bible classes. So I had it coming and going both ways in church on the weekends. And they always made sure that we hid God's word in our heart. Uh, because my mom was also great at reminding us that we were a new creation in Jesus Christ. And that each of you, the church, are a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old things have passed away. When My mom passed away three years ago, and so I was thinking about her a lot this week with Mother's Day approaching, and that particular verse really registered with me because of how mom drilled that truth into us. As a matter of fact, I wanted to share that verse with you specifically as we launch this morning. So look with me up on the screen at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Specifically, that word new is the word kainos. And the word kainos has a very specific definition. It means fresh. A completely new beginning. Our God doesn't refurbish. He takes an old being and makes it into a completely new being. By the power of the Holy Spirit, when you confess Jesus Christ in your life, He passed away the old things, forgiving you of everything in your past and giving you a fresh new beginning. So that's why they use the word archaios for old, where we get the word archaeology from, archaic. The old things have passed away. The old, unuseful things have gone into the past. That should not surprise any of us if we've been studying the book of Revelation as intently as we have over the last 18 weeks. We have discovered that our God's nature and character is to allow the old things to pass away so that he can bring the new things into existence. If you're new with us this morning, perhaps you're not aware that for the last 18 weeks we've been studying the book of Revelation. And as a favor to moms on Mom's Day, I decided not to preach forward on the demon portions today, but (laughs) rather to do a a partial review with you of some of the things that we've learned over the last 18 weeks, specifically from chapters 1 through chapters 5 about how Jesus revealed himself, the visual image that John got seeing Jesus and then seeing God on the throne and seeing the majesty of the throne room in heaven. And so that's where we're going to go today. We're going to take a look back at that because we understand that God has got a purpose and order and he's moving forward to this time in which he's allowing the old things to pass away so that he can bring the new things into existence. That comes directly to us from the book of Revelation. Revelation 21.5 says this, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, the archaic things, have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things kainos, 
I am making all things new. It is the nature and character of God to let the old things pass away and bring the new things into existence. That's what we're marching toward in the book of Revelation. So this king of creation says, I'm making all things new, and I'm giving the world an entirely new destiny. So in that first Sunday in which we looked at the destiny of the world, we discovered that this very aged man by the name of John, who was in his 90s, had been banished to an island by the Roman government, specifically by Domitian, the Caesar at that time. Caesar Domitian thought it was politically too risky to execute John because he had such a huge following. So he banished him to a Roman penal colony, thinking he would never be set free from there. And in the midst of his time on that island, God appeared to him and said, John, I'm about to show you future things. But first, I have an agenda for you. I'm going to show you the things which must soon take place. We look at Revelation 1.1. That's where you see that from. The things which must soon take place. Now, famously throughout the world, when people read the book of Revelation, they say, okay, that was written 2,000 years ago, and it says it must soon take place. Obviously, they didn't have a good calendar system. Well, actually, the word that's used there is the word entekai. And what it means is when it happens, it's going to happen very quickly. It means once the trigger is pulled, there'll be rapid succession of the events. The seven-year tribulation period, once it begins, there's no stopping it. And so Jesus said to John, there's things which must soon take place, but before I show you those things, I'm going to speak directly to my church. And we discovered that John saw a vision of Jesus about who he was, who he is, and who is to come and that that one wanted to talk to his church first. Look with me up on the screen, Revelation 1.4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace for him who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come. So if you want to follow along this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Revelation 1 through chapter 5, but it's going to appear on the screen as well, and it's going to go very quickly as we do a review of the things that we've learned about God's nature and God's character. Him who is, him who was, him who is to come, those are his attributes. And the very next thing John saw was a visual image of Jesus. Look at his definition. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, brilliantly glowing, eyes like lasers that can see everything. He didn't say his eyes were a flame of fire. He said they're like a flame of fire. And he can see everything. So like the Hebrew writer said, there is nothing hidden from his eyes with the one whom we have to do with. There's no creature hidden from him. He can see everything. So this is what John is seeing. His eyes like a flame of fire. His face shining like the sun. And he gave us one detail. He said, his voice when he spoke, it roars like thunder. If you've been to Niagara Falls, you've heard the rush of many waters. That's what John wrote here. He said his voice rushes like the sound of many waters beating against the ocean surf. And John just barely got the description out before he said, when I saw him, I collapsed like a dead man. I fainted. That's what he says here in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. 
So combining all these imagery pictures that we get together, John gave us the description of this one who has complete control over the universe, who wanted to speak not to a Fortune 500 company, not to a government, not to a university. As great as they all may be, he spoke directly to his church. Why? Because we are the bearers of truth. We are the ones who carry forward the information as light bearers. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. We carry forward truth. So all of this information that you're learning about finance, about political systems, about military systems, as we move through the book of Revelation, are entrusted to the church. And the church's responsibility is to be a light bearer to the world, to say, hey, this is what's coming. So he spoke to the church first to say, I want you to get your act together so that you can bear this information. The mission of the church is to exert tremendous influence upon society. Not to conform to society, but to exert influence upon society so that they see what is coming and understand this is real. So Jesus said with laser-like eyes, I know completely everything about my church. I have a full understanding. And then he turned the tables, and instead of speaking to the church corporately, he started speaking to us individually. Remember that phrase? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So you and I individually are supposed to be listening to these warnings, to these guides saying, I want you to pay attention because why? Because you are overcomers. You may be getting tired of this word that I'm using, nikao, so much. The word nikao meaning overcomer. The definition for it literally is this, to conquer, to prevail, to get the victory. It may sound to you, after we've been in this for 18 weeks, like you got to be like Joe Super Christian to be an overcomer. I mean, that's such a hard realm to reach to. Actually, Jesus said, you are already an overcomer. You just need to strive towards the things he's called you to do. Specifically, he said, I want you to work towards overcoming some of these things, but you are already an overcomer. Let me show you from Scripture. This is what it says in 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who nekao the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Are you already a nekao? Absolutely. You're already a conqueror if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So you have achieved that level already. So if you become an overcomer, Jesus said, I have some promises for you, some really big promises, things that he will reward you with if you overcome and endure to the end. If you're a nekao, some of those are so huge you'd have to say, I'd like to know what those are. I'd like to know more about those. I'm going to give you one example of one of the things he said he would give you this morning. First one comes from verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So when you read that, you'd say, well, okay, whose name does get erased from the book of life? Scripture is very clear that those who reject Jesus Christ are those who have their names blotted out of the book of life. So here's the way I understand this works. And if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and study the book of life all the way through Scripture, you'll see this consistent pattern that Jesus said there's a time coming when an individual passes away and they are judged. And if they have denied Jesus Christ, their name is erased from the book of life and they are cast into hell. But those who are overcomers, who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, have their names maintained in the book of life. So my understanding of this is that this book that's been written from the foundations of the world, every single individual who's ever been born, ever been conceived, has their name written in the book. And at some point, the King of Kings gets out the whiteout and blots out their name and removes them. There are promises that are so huge to those of us who are overcomers that you'd want to be reminded again what those are. Let me show you up on the screen the promises that we saw as we worked through this. Here's the promises to the Nikao. The privilege of eating from the tree of life, the crown of life, protection from the second death, the hidden manna, a white stone with a new name on it, authority to rule the nations, the morning star, a new wardrobe with white garments, will not blot our name out of the book of life. The honor of having Christ confess our names before God. To be made a pillar in God's temple. To write on us the name of God, the new city, and Christ. And ultimately seated at the throne of the King of Kings. An amazing promise that we get to sit with the King of Kings. Why are all these things shown to the church before he reveals the future things. Why unveil all this? Because of what he has done in the past, what he's going to do in the future has been entrusted to you and he wants you at peak performance, at peak operating performance because now we step into chapter four and John said, behold, I see a door. And Jesus said to him, John, come up here. And I'm going to show you the things which must soon take place. The portal is open. John steps into the throne room. In chapter 4, verse 2, we see what he saw. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting like Jasper, like a Jasper stone in Sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So the word I do is used there, I-D-O-O-U. And if you remember what the definition for it was, it was, wow, I can't believe this is what I'm seeing. He visibly was looking at the throne of God. And it appeared before him, and not was just the throne important to him, but that there is a throne. He said the word standing, which means that it has a reign to it. It doesn't just mean it's placed over there like the piano bench. It means it's firm and fixed because there are absolutes. So God reigns from this fixed throne in which there are absolutes. If there's absolutely a throne fixed, that means there are absolutes, absolute laws. We have it in medicine and science. The laws of thermodynamics. 
Doctors have to learn to operate within the laws of medicine, the laws of science, the laws of gravity, the laws of magnetic compass. We have a physical realm in which we dwell. There are laws to this realm. There are laws morally. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not lie. So we have laws morally. It makes sense then that there are more laws spiritually. And God's fixed throne reigns over all these laws. So that's why John said, I saw this fixed throne and it has a reign. It rules and everything that he's about to see ushers forth from this throne. Absolute God control. And John now begins to describe to us what it looks like to see God on the throne. He said specifically, like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance. Jasper, what's that? We learned that that was a diamond-type image, glistening, reflecting light, refracting light in all directions. So when Scripture uses this jasper stone associated with God, it's talking about His holiness, absolute purity. But he says also, I saw a sardius stone. That's red ruby. It's glowing, brilliant red. So what you associate red and white with are God's holiness and purity and his wrath and his justice. But the other thing he said he saw is that there's a rainbow circling around the throne and it's emerald in color. Why is that significant? If you think back to the Old Testament, what do you think of when you think of a rainbow? You think of God's promise to us. He said to Noah, Behold, I will set my bow in the clouds as a reminder to man that I will never again destroy the earth with a global flood. So when we look back in Scripture, we see that what the ancients saw was that these rainbows were a promise of God's faithfulness. Look with me up on the screen, Ezekiel 127. And there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. What this tells me is, when John looked in heaven and saw God on his throne, he saw his holiness, his wrath, but he also saw his mercy and his faithfulness. And so we understand that God's wrath never outweighs his mercy. And his justice never outweighs his grace. They work symbiotic. They're there together. John saw all of it at once. And now he moves forward and he understands that whatever he's about to see, this God is completely in control of this all. So jumping forward to verse 5, it says, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. This week when that thunderstorm was rolling through on Thursday and then again on yesterday, I was thinking of God's throne. Every time I hear thunder now, I think of God's throne. This roar of sound that ushers forth. It takes me back to this image that John saw, this flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder. And John's struggling to describe the scene. He immediately says it. He says it's like this, but it's kind of like this. And he visually got to see it. We didn't get that privilege. We get to read about it. The next thing he saw was, he said, there's something like a sea, and it's crystal, and it spreads out, 
in this vast expanse in front of the throne. And in front of the throne, at the base of it, he saw those four creatures. And what were those four creatures doing? They were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Imagine how much John had to take in to describe this moment. And he said they had six wings. With two, they flew. With two, they covered their eyes. And with two, they covered their feet. Why? Because they stood in the presence of God's holiness. So they had to cover their feet. And they couldn't look upon God. Even God's highest created order couldn't look upon him. So with two, they covered their eyes. And with two, they flew. And what did they do? They cried out to each other constantly. God is holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew text, if a word is repeated twice, it's to add emphasis. It's unheard of that a word is repeated three times, except here in the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy. They're declaring the truth of God. We see the same description from Isaiah 6.3 when Isaiah saw the same image. Isaiah 6.3 says this, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is the description I gave you at that time, and I think that was around week six. I said it's like going to an MSU game and hearing one side of the stadium say, Go green! And the other side say, Go white! And the other side says, Go green! So what you see are these magnificent creatures calling back and forth to each other, holy, 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 and they yell back, holy, holy, holy. And it builds in a crescendo because then we see that the elders begin to respond to the same thing. Verse 9, jump forward in chapter 4, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So the praise of the four triggers a response from the 24. And we see that these 24 are later added to in chapter 5 with harps. And after the harps and the instrument section is added in, then the angels add their voices, billions upon billions of angels. And then it ends by saying, all the entire universe began to praise God. They just couldn't hold it in anymore. So John saw this place of dazzling brilliance with God, with this image of fiery red wrath, surrounded by this emerald rainbow appearance of his faithfulness and heard all these voices. And it takes us right to the moment in chapter 5 in which all of creation waited for, the arrival of the King of Kings. Look with me up on the screen at chapter 5 and verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him, meaning God, of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And this is a profound picture of God's sovereign rule over all of the universe because this scroll, this biblion, goes back to the ancient days when the Romans used rolled up scrolls and put a seal upon it to authenticate a contract, a title deed to a piece of property. 
And John doesn't see just one Biblion with one seal on it. He sees a Biblion written on the front and back with seven seals upon it. And it's a magnificent image of God's ownership over the earth. And it reminds me that however strong the attacks of Satan may seem, especially as you look at the book of Revelation, God still holds ownership over everything. But the question is asked as they step forward, who can open up the seal? Only the owner of the contract can open the contract. He's the only one that can break the seals. So the scroll is not only about judgment, it's also about ownership and the unveiling of the details of the future. So we find in verse 2 an angel talking very loudly. This is what John saw, chapter 5, verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now just imagine with me for a minute. Everyone in heaven stands quiet. There's no one. There's no one worthy to step forward and to take this title deed from God's hand and begin to open the scroll. So all of heaven stands motionless. All of creation, no response. His voice only echoes. Look with me up on the screen, verse three. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. We're talking powerful angels. Michael, Gabriel, they have to stand quiet. They're all looking around. Who's going to do this? And so Scripture says to us that John began to weep profusely. So much so that it was a scream out loud because there was no one found worthy to open the book. And then one of the elders said to him, John, stop your crying. Look with me up on the screen, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So someone is emerging on the scene, and it's Jesus. It's the King of Kings. He's worthy because he is the root of David. That's what he says. The root of David has come. And what has he done? He's a nekao. He's an overcomer. He's the nekao who has overcome Satan. So he's from the lion, of, the lion of Judah's tribe. And then it says he's a nekao. And everything has been building towards this moment. The appearance of the king. And breaking out from everywhere in the universe is this adulation of praise for him. Look with me at verse 7. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. They fell down just because he took the scroll. He hadn't even opened it yet. They're excited just because he now has possession of it, let alone that he's going to pop it open. All the anticipation of millennia just cannot contain itself anymore, and it finally burst out. And you find that in verse 9. And they sang something specific. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. 
for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. There is a center of gravity in that declaration of statement. When I was in flight school, we were taught specifically that if you front load the plane too much, too much weight in the front end, the back end goes up and the nose points downward. It makes sense. There's a fulcrum, a point of gravity. If you put too much baggage in the back of the plane, the nose goes up and the tail goes down. There has to be a center balance. And you see that in this declaration. Why is he worthy? Because you purchased men from every tribe, tongue, and language. You are therefore worthy. Because you did this, you can pop open the seals and declare what the future is. He doesn't just say, you purchased them from the United States. He says, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, from Russia to Michigan, from Chile to Brazil, from Australia to Germany. They're all feeling this weight that they were purchased. I described to you, I think it was in week 12, what a purchase looked like at this time. And agarazzo was performed here. This is a word that's used specifically when a wealthy landowner went to the slave market and purchased a slave for the purpose of setting them free. That's the only reason they performed an agarazzo. And this agarazzo meant that that wealthy owner showed up at the slave market and saw an individual whom he wanted to not buy to put to work, but that he wanted to buy to release. So Jesus has released us. He has purchased us. We were slaves to sin, and he purchased us and performed an agarazzo. And that's the word that they use here in heaven to declare a truth. You purchased us and set us free. So John can't stop there, and he moves forward into verse 11. As we wrap this up, this is what he saw. Then I looked, and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So what started out as a quartet of the four creatures around the throne grew very quickly into an ensemble, the ensemble of the 24 elders, and then the music section kicked in, and then the choir, all of the angels around the throne, and before long, all of creation sounds their voices and lifts up in verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, meaning God, and to the Lamb, Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So far beyond the throne room, far beyond the anthem of the choir of angels, John began to hear all of creation. Everything that was ever created begins to lift its voices. It reflects what Scripture says, that God gave Jesus a name that was above every name and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and confess Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of God the Father. 
That's what you see being played out right here. In the throne room, the stage is set for you to celebrate communion properly. Because when we celebrate this, when we participate in the Lord's table, it's to remind us of the price that he paid. What was the price that he paid? Not just the death of the cross. He left what you just learned about. He left eternity to come be killed on a cross to agarazzo us and purchase us back. A people released from sin.